Do you remember getting the talk? Did your parents ever give you the talk? Or were you, Lord help you, given the talk by your educators at school in that class? Are you part of that group that came up through the great educations of our state? Either way, we remember the talk. Or maybe you've had to give your, the talk recently to someone. Um, it's always awkward. It's, it's just this, like, you just got to do it. I remember very vividly the talk. I didn't know it was the talk until later, but I remember, like, okay, mom, that's weird. Let's move on. I remember it. Um, it has to happen at some time. And tonight, the father in chapter 5 gives his son the talk. Now, I want us to notice, though, as we see this, that this is in the household. This is in the family, and that's where it should be. Parents should give their children. It should come from parents, and in the absence thereof, or if they're not doing their job, from the grandparents, should be giving their generations the talk. It shouldn't be coming from the state. It shouldn't be coming from any other secular source. It should be coming from a Christian worldview. So um, here's, the, here's kind of the elephant in the room. Some of us are like, shouldn't this be for the youth? Where are the youth? Um, yes, this should be for the youth. I'm not at all condemning whatever they're doing. That wasn't, I never even invited them. I know that Pastor Dan has his program with them, and they attend every now and then with us. But um, my, you might be going, this isn't for us. Look at us. This isn't for us. No, it is for us for four reasons. Some of us have children. So, and some of us that are not here tonight have children. And Micah has children. And, or your grandparents, and you're kind of playing the role of parent to your grandchildren. Um, and here's the alarming thing, is that children need to hear the talk earlier than ever before. And I don't know when that is. Actually, Brittany and I, sadly, have questioned my daughter in kindergarten, is it time? That's how crazy and perverse this world is, that you don't know what a friend, because they have mom's phone or whatever, is going to tell your children and grandchildren. It is coming so early. Um, even at the Christian school, fifth graders had to be discussed about what they were sharing pictorial, pictorially on their phones. Fifth grade. This used to be a high school, then maybe a junior high problem. It's now elementary. So we, some of us have children and grandchildren, and we must be aware that this is coming to them fast. We want to be on the forefront and guarding our children. doesn't mean necessarily sheltering them, but making sure that we are their educators. Second reason is that many of us know unmarried youth in our own lives. Um, you might be a mentor to someone or have influence or have connections with someone. So it's good to know our Christian worldview on these things so that you can share that and give that out. Um, third reason is that Christianity, it needs a basic Christian vision for intercourse. Because the statistics about our adultery and our divorce it is not too much better than the world. And that's a shame. That's a crying shame. We need a revamp of our own worldview of what we believe when it comes to the human bodies and their integration. Uh, and fourth, divorce rates. I didn't know this until this week, but divorce rates for 50 plus year olds has doubled since 1990. Clearly, we don't have a plan for marriage that goes to the end of life. I mean, if you got to 50, how is it falling apart? At fi how, how is that happening? Well, we'll talk about that. But you would think it would, you know, the first year is the hardest. I don't know about most. I hear that, and then I experience that. 
Um, if like you can get through the first year, I feel like you should get through anything, but not in the way that the world has taught us to live. It is now we're watching as evidenced by Bill and Melinda Gates. Did you see that? They announced their divorce, high profile couple, and everyone's like, oh, they have all the money in the world. How could they get divorced? Because it's much more complicated than how much you make. But you know that. Or if you don't, know that. Marriage takes work, not wealth. Money fixes things, but not people. So we're in the middle of a series, The College of Christ. This is going to be all the way to the end of October. It's the wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. So just to review, you've heard that. Proverbs is a book that really has just two sections. Chapters 1 through 9 are 11 lessons from the parents to the son. Um, and so we are going to look at the eighth lesson tonight. And then chapters 9 through 31 are where you get to what are called Proverbs. And these are these two-liners that are meant to give you um, a short, they're short sentences founded on long experience. In other words, hey, learn, then live. Don't live, then learn. We can tell you it's folly before you go and find out it's folly. So what the Proverbs are going to invite us to, as well as Ecclesiastes and Job, is wisdom. Wisdom is living with the grain of God's world. This is how he made things go. The wise person accepts reality as handed to him and walks in that way. The fool says, no, I don't like that. I'm going to do it my way. Well, when you go against the grain, that's when you get your splinters. And that's the life of the fool. So we're seeking to live in the grain of God's world. All right, so Proverbs 5. The father gives the son... Remember, we should always, as Christians, read this as our Father, our Heavenly Father, is giving to his children the talk, wisdom coming alongside us as Christ, a prefigure of Christ. So here's how this is going to work. The first six verses is when he's going to introduce the talk by showing, by basically saying, hey, you got to listen to what I'm about to tell you because if you don't listen to this, it's really going to hurt you later. Then in verses 7 through 14, He's going to warn us against free and easy access to what should only be had in marriage. Warning, it's, it's out there, but if you do it, this will happen. And then the third, the last section, verses 15 to 23, he's going to tell us about the wisdom of enjoying relationships within a marital context. All right, there's great wisdom in that. So in ways, this continues from chapter 4, the idea of passing down tradition and wisdom one of the great traditions the church has always had is the covenant of marriage. And we want to make sure that we hold that, that that is important to us. Okay, let's read it. We'll uh, point out some of the highlights. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Here's why. For the lips of a forbidden woman, remember that also means strange in the Hebrew, the lips of a strange woman, or in other words, a woman who is not part of the Israelite community of faith. She has a different way of life, a different outlook on things than you do, therefore she's strange. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Ooh, I want some of that, he thinks. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. 
sharp as a two-edged sword. So it's like stevia or some other artificial sweetener. It just It's sweet at first, but it leaves a funny taste in the mouth afterward. It's, it's not the real deal. Okay, the, the forbidden woman, oh, look, Coke Zero, no calories. It's awesome. It's a promise there, but there's a lot to be wanting. It's lacking, and all it's going to give you, well, it's, 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 it's bad sugar with all the calories nonetheless. It's a bad deal. So that's his warning. That basically, sin is sweet for a season, but bitter in the end. Wisdom, wisdom always looks at the long-term consequence of any action. That is wisdom. It never asks what is the immediate gratification. And the father here warns of this. There are lots of ways in life to get immediate gratification. Honey is everywhere. But consider the aftertaste. Consider if you will want that forever. That's what wisdom asks. Is wisdom, ask, wisdom asks the question, does this action, this attitude, this decision have a trajectory that I want to sustain forever? Literally forever, because we will live forever. So if we're going to make choices and have this trajectory throughout our life, <laughs> your soul is moving in a direction that's going to keep going that way forever. What's going to make you think that when you die, you're suddenly going to have different desires? That's something C.S. Lewis brilliantly warns us about, is that we are setting up our desires for eternity today by what we choose. Wisdom asks, what do I want in the long run? Her feet, verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Remember, that's the place of the dead. It was not desirable, shadowy place of not quite hell. It's not eternal punishment, but it is the place of the dead until the eternal hell. Um, her, feet, her steps follow the path to the place of the dead. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not know it. Now, that's the introduction. This is why you need to hear what I'm about to say, because it's a tricky world out there. It's sticky and sweet, and you don't want to get caught up <laughs> sticking your nose in the wrong beehive like Winnie the Pooh can do, if you know what I mean. Um, and now, O oh sons, verse 7, here's the warnings. Now, O oh sons, not just my son, but all the sons, all, this, is a, this is a major warning. Listen to me. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house. <laughs> Don't, in other words, think, oh, I can handle it. I can be with the buddies that like to hang out with her, but I can be above that. He's saying, have a clear and distinct boundary. Because that, when you get a little too near, the gravitational pull that's happening here is stronger than you want to mess with. And many have been pulled into it. Many in here have been pulled into it. And we know, man, if you think you're stand, take heed lest you fall. That's Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10. So don't even go near, verse 9, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take fill of your strength and your laborers go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, 
how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am, or could be translated, I was at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. What a warning. You're going to lose everything, the Father warns. If you choose free and easy relationships of that bodily kind, you will give up everything. Now, on one hand, he's warning literally against adultery because you could get sued, you could lose everything, the jealous husband can take all from you, and that actually still happens in some states today. You can be sued for doing that. Um, But I, I also see in here, of course, there's an aspect where your soul is robbed. You are taken, all of your vitality and all of your, everything that you had going for life can come crashing down if you get involved in the wrong relationship and do it in the wrong way. This can be the downfall of many people, men and women. Just look at politicians today. Oh, it's getting tiresome, isn't it? Every, nobody's safe. Everybody's being accused of doing something in their past. Now, we can question all day if these are made-up witnesses or if it really happened. But we're seeing the ruin that it brings to people. This is why the father warns, don't even go near. Don't let anyone have a reason to bring up an accusation against you. Because you could lose your reputation, your power, your authority, your influence. You could lose your witness. You could lose so much. Uh, Notice that he says in verse 12 and 13, he hated discipline. He wanted to do it his own way. I've been seeing that in the Proverbs. What a fool. Only the fool says, I want to do it my way. And then verse 14 I am at the brink of utter ruin, the ESV says. I think the New King James or something else. Um, I was reading that the Hebrew could be, I was at the brink of utter ruin. So it's not really clear if he's there or he was there. If it's he was at the brink of ruin, what we see in verses um, 12, 13, and 14 is he's confessing his mistake. And the father's showing that, look, if you fall, confession can help restore you. It can help, but you're going to pay the cost. Like, there's no, like, oh, you're done. God's so mad at you. There's always a way back, but it's going to take confession. So it might be something we're seeing. So that's the warning. It will cost you everything. So verse 15, here's the wisdom. (laughs) There's a place you can enjoy intercourse and have it abundantly. There's... Here's the, old, here's the old illustration. Fire is good in a fireplace. It warms the house. You can cook food with it. It warms you. It gives light. But when fire is taken out of the fireplace, it can really bring destruction, and you can lose everything. So it's the same here. That intercourse should belong in a certain place, but out of bounds, it can bring great destruction. So the father is going to say that place is marriage. It's the fireplace. Fire is safe, enjoyable, wonderful there. And this has been the pattern we've been seeing in wisdom the whole time. It's accepting reality as God says it is. Not choosing to be wise in our own eyes and redefine reality the way we want it to be. That's folly. I want it to be free and easy and with whomever and casual. Okay, 
If that's your reality, but guess what? Your reality doesn't become reality. That's why it's foolishness. The fire outside of the fireplace is still going to burn no matter how badly you don't want it to burn. And so the wisdom of, look, there are parameters and within parameters, go crazy, go wild, have fun. But wisdom has parameters because this is how God created it. And the wise go with the grain. So, or, that's the, that's the one I hear often, is the fire metaphor. The father chooses to use, in this passage, the water metaphor. So water, shift now from fire to water, and you'll understand what he's saying. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. In other words, enjoy intercourse with the person you're married to. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Now, the springs there is the source of the water, right? So this would refer to the persons or person that you enjoy the water from. Should, your, should the source be out there in the streets, <clears throat> forbidden woman, other people? No, it shouldn't be out and abroad. You don't want water being wasted in the streets, Water's no good when it's not in a container. Marriage is your container for water. Let them be for yourself alone. I take them to be the waters. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. You're not sharing. This is, this is a good COVID example, right? Don't share your water with others. Um... Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. And be intoxicated. The Hebrew is literally <laughs> led astray. Be intoxicated always in her love. So the way when you drink too much of something, you can be led astray. It's the idea. Drink deeply with your spouse. Be intoxicated there, because there, that's safe. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, even in the bedroom, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. It's so true, especially in this type of, of sin. It is incredibly addictive because this is one of the actions of humanity that involves all five senses. And so that's why it's so appealing to humans is because it grabs you in so many different levels. And therefore, you can be really hooked and addicted if you go the wrong way here. Um, You'll notice, so ensnare him. The iniquities of the wicked will ensnare him. It didn't say God's going to punish him with addiction. He's going to get stuck in it himself. His own iniquities are going to ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. This is a sacrificial imagery. That when you're going to butcher the animal on the altar, you hold it fast with cords. He's talking about destruction. This is the death of your, this is the end of your life. He dies, verse 23, for lack of discipline and because 
of his great folly he has led astray. He dies for lack of discipline. Verse 12, he said, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Definitely a theme here is that discipline, the wise are disciplined. The wise know how to discipline their lives, their eyes, their ears, their minds, their bodies. Definitely a theme. But I wanted to stick with the idea of marriage tonight because um, that's more of the emphasis here. Chapter 6 and 7, we'll talk about the discipline of keeping our way. Uh, because that one is going to talk about how the father watched this boy being ensnared and led astray into sin. And so we'll talk about guarding the mind, the eyes, um, how sin works, how it ensnares us, how to resist it. That's kind of going to be the emphasis next week. Tonight, though, we're just going to mostly talk about the worldview of marriage because that's what the father's saying here. Look, here's the talk, son, and here's the wise path. Marriage is, the tradition of marriage is wise. So hold, enter into it. If this is a problem for you, you need to be married. You need to deal with the problem first too because it doesn't get fixed by marriage. It doesn't get fixed by marriage. Maybe that's more next week. But um, it's also not to say that those who choose to be single are unwise. There's a place for that too. And God, we, we see in the Bible that there is a gift of chastity. And so that, that is something that God calls some people to. But for those, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, those who are burning with lust, marriage is your fireplace. Okay, so here are, we see how the father does, these, does the talk with them. You see how straight he is with his son? doesn't kind of go around it and just say, oh, just be, be careful, son. Just be careful. Like, yeah, I want you to kind of become a man or, or my daughter. I want you to experience things, but just be careful. That's a lot of the advice today. He's very direct. says, this could kill you. Not maybe physically, but it will kill all the good things going for you. He's direct. He uses imagery. He, uh, he shows this in story form, but he shows also, notice how he's telling them that there's a design here. God has given us a great gift. God has given us lots of freedom. God is not this restrictive, I, I, I despise the body and how dare you have fun with your body. This is not the tone of the father at all. It's very wise and straightforward. I bring this up because we have two very poor ways of having the talk with our kids in the church. And I've heard all of it. Um, one is, maybe you can say, the liberal way. And that is, hey, everyone should be free to explore. Even in the church, this is encouraged. Just the church, that what they say is, the Christian ethic is do not do so in such a way that will hurt the other person or yourself. As long as everyone's consenting and safe, we don't see why God has a big deal with it. That's one of the ways the church gives the talk. Just be wise about how you do it. <laughs> wise in your own eyes is not wise in any way. We looked at that earlier. The second way, and this is the common way, I think, in Calvary Chapel, we would have heard this way often. I'm saying it's a poor way, not that everybody in Calvary or everybody, every one of us has done it poorly, but it can be done very poorly. And it goes like this. The conservative approach says, um, because of this verse and that verse and that verse, you shall not. And it becomes a rule book. 
a rule book of isolated verses restricting intercourse outside of marriage. Do you understand the problem here? Maybe you don't. <laughs> because it, on the one hand, it sounds good. Bible verses, yay, that's what we need. No. If somebody's dealing with desire and has been sucked into the narrative of the world of what um, intercourse is for, Isolated Bible verses, little snippets here and there, are not going to change their heart. You might get a good child or a good grown-up even to obey outwardly, but you will not get purity within the heart. Purity doesn't come that way. It's not a rule book. This approach fails because it neglects to address the stories we live in. Understand, God's command for our ethic regarding our bodies is in a narrative. We need to understand why God asked for our sanctification and purity because we need to understand why he's asking for that in context of the great story he's accomplishing in the world, not arbitrary rules of, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that, but you can do that. That's not how Christianity works. We're not a rule book. We are the gospel, which literally means, well, in the Greek, it's good news, News is stories, but in the English word, gospel comes from God's spell. And spell is an old word for story. God's story. We're in a narrative. God's doing something. This is why he's asking us to follow his ways. This is how we should do the talk. Um, by the way, I said like um, rule books, isolated verses from Paul, blah, 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 don't, don't, don't. doesn't always work because I love what St. Basil the Great said. <laughs> I think this relates to so many people. He says, I have not known a woman, and yet I am not a virgin. I've not known a woman physically, and yet I am not a virgin. Mentally, imaginatively, spiritually, you can follow the rules and be just as much of an adulterer as a worldling. What we need is not black and white video clips, we need technicolor and the full film. That's what's more compelling. So that's what we've done, is we've thrown a lot of verses, but we need the full film. So here it is. Let's talk about the film. What is the story of the Christian body? And then we will contrast that with the story the world is telling. And you know the story the world is telling because we are saturated with it because it's everywhere from billboards to radio to music to movies to television to conversations to news articles and the way people report news about infidelity. Just in the tone it's reported, you can hear the stories. It's everywhere. So the Christian story. There are seven chapters on the body. Seven. I thought this was wonderful. Uh, by the way, the, the idea was sprung on me by a commentator who mentioned somebody else, and he had this great thing about... Body, 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 body. I was like, what? Woo. So here I'm distilling it to seven chapters of the story. You, you won't believe how body-oriented Christianity is until you hear this. I was, I was like, wow, I didn't even consider that. So chapter one is creation. In the beginning, God made us. We were bodies. He didn't make us floating spirits, but he made us bodies and he called it good. We need to start with the concept that we are not Gnostics. What is that? Those are people who think that the physical world is evil and the spiritual world's pure, and the goal is to escape the physical and be in the purely spiritual, and then everything will be glorious. That is so unchristian. God made a physical, concrete world, and he called it good. 
And he gave Billy and he gave me and he gave Adam and Eve bodies and he called it good. Now your body might be breaking down and it may not feel very good right now, but God loves the fact you have a body. What we experience, however, is chapter two, the fall, when the body was now taken prisoner by sin. And now sin is misusing our bodies to ways and means that God did not intend for us. And this is where we struggle with our bodies. And we often find our bodies an enemy. But the body's not an enemy. It is under the bondage of sin. And this is why, chapter 3, God comes to save us, how? In a body. He didn't look at us and go, ugh, human flesh. He actually came in a human body. And we talked at Christmas how important it is that Jesus took a complete human body. He didn't just come as a human body through the Virgin Mary. We made a big emphasis at Christmas that it was of the Virgin Mary. He took flesh from her flesh and was fully human because he cannot save that which he has not assumed. He assumed our full humanity. That's God's stamp of approval on the body. It's also why we read Psalm 8 earlier, that the, the marvel of God, you think of man, because as Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 and talks about Jesus becoming that body and becoming a ruler. But anyways, I, I don't, I'm probably getting too off there. Um, God came in a body, and what did he do with the bodies around them? Keep them at arm's length? He touched lepers. He healed bodies. He was close to the disciples. Uh, and then we see at his passion, he suffered in a body. His body was crucified. His body hurt. His body bled. And then you could think, oh, good riddance. We got the body part done with resurrection. Let the spirit come out. No, he came out in a body. Not the body that has succumbed to the tyranny of sin and death, but the body which has been liberated from sin and death. The sort of body that God created Adam and Eve to inhabit, that kind of body comes out of the tomb, and we are promised that he was the first fruits, that means preview, of the rest of the bodies to come, that we in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time will inherit bodies, Philippians 3 says, just like his does God despise the body? God has built into the program that you get your body forever. Good news is, though, that your body will be better than it is now. Amen. Wayne says he's recovering from shoulder surgery. He understands. And hip surgery. He understands. Um, so do many of you. So God came. So that was chapter three. Chapter four, baptism. Baptism is where your body is incorporated into the body known as the church. We are the body of Christ. Chapter 5, communion. We sustain this life in and with Christ because he gave to us his body through the bread. Chapter 6, holiness. Our new life in Christ, how is that manifest and expressed? Through words? Yes, but words alone are weak through our actions, through the enfleshment of the gospel in our new life. 
It's the way we live in our bodies that shows the sanctification of God's work in us. And then chapter 7, I already said this, but now we have to do it in order. The resurrection, that when Christ returns, so do our bodies. We all receive the resurrected body. Yeah, that's the Christian view of bodies. Very positive. Positive body image. And we need to know that. That God does not see ugly bodies and beautiful bodies. Bodies are his idea. And they're beautiful to him. And if we're uncomfortable with that, we need we, that, that's something we can work with with God on. But he sees the body as a good thing. And this is the story of the body. So now we understand better, why is God asking us to use the body in a certain way? Because there's a great story happening with the body. Are you going to be stuck in chapter 2? That's what the world's doing. You're stuck in chapter 2. Letting sin use the body for its means. Oh, but we're so liberated. We, we have casual intercourse all the time. Oh, you're liberated? So sin continues to hold your body down. You're liberated. That, that we're stuck way back in chapter 2 when the church and Christianity and the gospel God's doing is this full narrative of restoring and redeeming the bodies which sin have ruined that we have ruined through our choices. This is a beautiful story. It's a powerful story, and it's embedded in our faith. So the world story, like I said, we're stuck in chapter 2. This is what the world story is like. The world story is basically we are individuals in pursuit of pleasure. Individuals in pursuit of pleasure. What a high calling. That's it? I'm an individual, so I'm... I'm wise in my own eyes. I don't really relate. You and I, we don't depend on each other at all. You could die for all I care. I'm speaking as a worldling. Okay? You can die for all I care, and I'm going to move on just fine because I still have my pursuit of pleasure intact. So we pursue pleasure in so many ways, one of which is through physical pleasure. So here's their story. They would never use these words, but if we were to put their story over our Christian worldview, this is how it would look. Creation. We're not created in the image of God. We're just individuals who happen to be here, biological beings. We're biological beings seeking personal discovery and growth through the pursuit of pleasure. That's what we're here to do. But here's the fall. Here's where everything got ruined. Christianity and its sexual ethic. Those Christians have ruined everything. They cite the Puritans and the current Christians and the conservatives and, oh, their restrictive rules and they hate the body and they hate, the, they hate fun and they just want to ruin our time. We're the bad guys. We're the sin. We're the fall. And so the great salvation came about in the sexual revolution when the church was no longer the dominating tradition of our culture. And now everyone is free to liberate themselves and express themselves and explore themselves wherever, whenever, with whomever to discover who they are. That's the narrative we still live in. It hasn't changed. It's just getting more deeply embedded in who we are. So salvation in the world story is completely opposite of the Father's wisdom here. And this is why we see marriage suffering. Because we have a world that's trying to put two puzzle pieces together that don't fit anymore. Marriage doesn't work in a free sexual revolution society. Because marriage is restriction under this view. And yet people still get married. What we've had to do is redefine what we mean by marriage. Marriage is a temporary commitment until we 
decide it's best we move on and find another partner. That's what marriage is today. It's a temporary, it's like a lease. We know we can live together for X amount of time, but we know that time will run out. We either renew the lease or we decide to part ways. But in the Bible, marriage is not a lease. It is an eternal commitment. It is a determination. God created intercourse for marriage. Period. But in our day, we believe that it is a right. You hear it all talked about all the time. Intercourse is a right for every human being. That's not how Christians see it. It's a gift given to some, not given to others. And unless you're willing to comply with what God is putting out before you, like his blueprint, you don't get the gift. Like you can't build a house unless you're going to follow the blueprint or good rules of construction or it's going to come down on you. That's just common sense. That's wisdom. And God says the same thing with intercourse. So why marriage. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, you know this. Um, Adam named all the animals, which shows his rule over them. Um, Kings named things. So Adam's naming the animals. He's ruling over them. He's showing his mastery over them. But he notices that there's none to me. There's no partner for him. They all have partners. He doesn't have one. So God sees that, and he produces Eve out of the rib from his side. And then we read in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, this is the author of Genesis breaking the fourth wall. You remember the fourth wall? It's where the, like in plays, and film, it's where the audience actually address, or the, the actors actually address the audience. Usually you, don't, you pretend the audience isn't there, right? You actually address the audience. Well, Genesis breaks the fourth wall and says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become... One flesh. Paul cites this verse in Ephesians 5 when he's talking about marriage. That's how important it is to him. He cites it and says this about it. This mystery, becoming one flesh, this mystery is profound. Paul, if you think it's profound, I believe you because everything else you say is profound too. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to Christ and the church. One flesh refers to Christ and the church. In other words, in the Bible, intercourse is the mutual indwelling of two individuals. Mutual indwelling. Okay, some of you were around when we did the, um, earlier this calendar year, the Partakers of the Divine Nature series. And we talked about what that means. Union with Christ is a mutual indwelling. My identity, my life is in him, and he and his power is in me. Do you see what's happening here? This is mutual indwelling, and this is intercourse. The biblical vision for this is mutual indwelling. There were two individuals, now they're no longer two individuals. This person is inside this person, this person's inside this person. Mutual indwelling, union. They're partaking of one another's nature. That is far more than cohabiting. That is far more than we occasionally sleep together. That is, we are becoming literally one. 
What are your dreams? I will incorporate those in my own. What are my interests? I will give those to you. The two are becoming one. This is why casual intercourse is so destructive because it severs this one flesh. It severs this union. And you cannot believe that you're just going to casually be with someone and then just pull away as if nothing happened. You were becoming, something of you went to that person, some of that person went to you. And you, you're just pulling away. You're going to leave parts of yourself all over if you follow the world's story and you will be like the father warned. It will cost you yourself. So, C.S. Lewis put it like this. By the way, his, his chapter in Mere Christianity on marriage is really good. I'm just going to, there'll be two quotes tonight from it. This is the first. He says, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. So you're wanting this union, but you're, you're, you're isolating one little aspect of it. Or to put it another way, we being made in the image of God, our body, soul, and spirit, we are triune beings. We have three layers to us. We're trying in a casual relationship, we're trying to isolate one part of the human, the body, and unite that to another one part of a human, the body, and somehow try to escape union of body, soul, and spirit. And what exactly what is happening in that casual union is you're actually divorcing yourself from itself. You're bringing a rent into the, the image that God has made you as. And I'm just isolating myself as merely a body, merely a piece of biological tissue. That's a far cry from the image of God, and that's an assault to what God has made us. Okay, so how do we find and keep a spouse? Some of us are single by age, by divorce, by just long life of not being married. It's possible, right? It's possible, or even by death. How do we find a spouse? I think it's important to talk about. How do we keep a spouse? So... Obviously, we're some time into this message, so this will be brief, but um, here we go. Finding a spouse. I have two pieces of advice to start with. First, don't seek a soulmate. Don't seek a soulmate. I'm asked all the time, actually, do you believe in soulmates? It's taken me some time to be confident with my thought on this, and I say, no, I don't believe in soulmates. Soulmate is the idea that there is a specific person out there that I'm supposed to marry. Maybe, but I don't think that we should go around thinking that way. That could be dangerous. Don't seek a soulmate, but grow into soulmates. See, the difference here is important. Um, it implies that if there's a soulmate out there that I'm supposed to meet, then there's going to be some sort of easy, organic uh, union together with eternal feelings of being in love. Because they're my soulmate. It's not going to take a lot of effort. We're just meant to be. And then when all of a sudden things are hard and you don't have that eternal feeling of being in love, you're going to suddenly think, oh, I married the wrong person. They're not my soulmate. It sets us up for a terrible model of what marriage actually and realistically is. 
And so when these things happen, it will encourage thoughts of divorce. I married the wrong person. I got to go find God's person for me. I encourage people, now that I've been watching the world, I encourage people to just look, don't look for that soulmate. Be soulmates with the person you're choosing. Because... I lost my thought. Because we need less of bailing and saying, oh, you're the wrong person, I need someone easier, or it's just not working anymore. And we need more maturity which says, I'm willing to grow into the man or woman I need to be for you. That person, that soulmate, isn't there to come and sidecar along, what's the motorcycle term, the sidecar? Is it a sidecar? Yeah, side, you're not gonna, they're not there to come and sidecar with my ambitions in life. But that is how every single young person is looking at marriage right now. That's why we're looking for the right person. They got to be the right fit. Brothers and sisters, God has far bigger plans for you than you to be your youthful self forever and to find a person that will let you just be your youthful self. You're supposed to grow up, and the person you marry is supposed to grow up. And here's the thing you're supposed to grow up into mutual indwelling together. You're supposed to grow up together. It takes another person to grow you up. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. So don't look for the soulmate. Be soulmates together. Become the soulmates, fitting together by the way you're sacrificing for one another and living for one another. Um, I do believe that if you marry the wrong person, you can make it work if you're willing to do the work. There's no reason the Spirit of God cannot bring union between people if I'm willing to love with all my heart. So soulmates, it can be a dangerous concept. Second, um, looking to get married, be patient but not picky. Now, like true love weights will tell you to just be patient, don't, don't do it before marriage, uh, make a list of who you want to marry so that you remember, oh, this person doesn't stack up. The danger of that is that you can get really picky and never find anyone who's according to your list. Second danger is that your spouse is not a designer spouse. It's not like today in our world where everything's designed or anything, everything's customizable. Even when you go to Chipotle, what do you want on it? I ordered this. Just put what that is in there. I still got to ask you what you want every step of the way. It's annoying sometimes. But designer spouses are not, sorry, Brittany, they're not a thing. She hates that phrase. They're not a thing. They don't exist. So be patient, but don't be picky. And here's the thing. With Brittany, she was not what I would, I was being patient, but she was not initially what I thought I was looking for in a wife. I pushed her away for a long time. There's a story behind all that, but I had to realize that God's knowledge of me is greater than my knowledge of myself. And so we cannot be picky and think this is the type of person I'm looking for. We have to be open to the fact that the person who we are overlooking or thought there's no way or chance might actually be the very person that would be very beneficial in our lives. That's not the same thing as saying, oh, there's a soulmate, because actually what we're doing is we're overlooking the whole, it will fit my life, and that person you didn't expect is going to be the person who's going to draw you out of yourself and help sanctify you and grow you in Christ. And that is the truth of Brittany. Changed me, definitely. Aww. You're welcome, babe. No, She's probably the opposite. Sorry, babe. <laughs> All right, so now let's talk about keeping a spouse. Keeping a spouse. Uh, first, grow, you gotta follow this. grow from being in love to being love. There's a phase where you're in love, you're being in love, and it's emotional. 
then you got to, though, grow into being love itself. And that's when it's a determination. It's not just an emotion. It's a determination. It's easy to be in love early, but at some point, you have to choose to be love. You have to choose to love. You're not going to stand the certain ticks and annoying habits that your spouse has. You're not going to agree on everything. You have to choose to be love. Here's the second of the C.S. Lewis quotes I told you I'd give you. He said, Love is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit. It's reinforced by, in Christian marriages, the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity, but this quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. So there are, in other words, two types of love. There's the emotion, the cloud nine, the dreaming about the person all the time. Goodness, Lewis argues in his chapter, do you really want to live that way forever? You wouldn't have any friends, you would be fired, it wouldn't work. It starts that way, but then you move into the second love, and that's where, um, that's where you just got to be determined, I'm going to act in love, because I'm not always going to feel romantic, and you don't. It's like the first year of marriage is romantic, the second year is, and evermore, is <laughs> choosing to love, even when you don't want to. But by choosing to, the feelings often follow. Um, second, so go from being in love to being love. Second, become one flesh so that you don't grow apart. Become one flesh so you don't grow apart. Remember, one flesh is that mutually indwelling one another. So there's a piece of my spouse in me, and there's a piece of myself in my spouse. And that ratio is ever, ever growing. And why I think as you get older in your marriage, you tend to see those people are literally the same person. Because it, it, it actually happens that there's so much of each other's nature in one another through a true, genuine love and mutual indwelling. Um, so here's what this means, though. It doesn't mean that two individuals try to make their separate lives fit. That's not one flesh. That's cohabiting. Got my dreams and my ambitions, your dreams and your ambitions, and we'll try to make it work. Eventually, it won't work. Bill and Melinda Gates, it didn't work. That's why they could be married into their 50s, but then have a divorce, because at some point, maybe that what kept them together was their kids. Now their kids are 18 to 25, so that's probably why it's happening now. Um, here's what they said, actually, on their Twitter post. This was like May 3rd, I think they announced it. He said, we no longer believe we can grow together as a couple in the next phase of our lives. We no longer believe we can grow together as a couple in the next phase of our lives. Yeah, clearly somewhere in there, their, their goals went separate. They're two individuals who just, it, we've ran our course and we can no longer make our two different ambitions fit. They're not one flesh. And by the way, what do you mean by next phase? Um, this one marital expert in an article I read said, you go through phases in your marriage and you go through phases as a person, and sometimes they don't jive. I go through phases as a person, but my marriage goes through separate phases. No, one flesh means my phases are my marriage's phases. The phases are one in the same. That's what one flesh means. Of course they jibe. Number three, connect 
body, soul, and spirit. You have to connect on three levels. This is from John Corson. That's so memorable and well done. He describes that a successful marriage works on body, soul, and spirit. Um, that the body is your physical and sexual attraction. The soul is your emotional and internal connection. And the spirit is your spiritual connection. So there must be the physical connection, the emotional connection, the spiritual connection. He then goes on to say that if you are connected on one of those three, your marriage is doomed. It won't last. If you're connected on two of those, you'll, you, you'll just have to work on your marriage. It'll be work, but you can be married. If you're connected on all three levels, heaven is your marriage. It's a happy marriage. So make sure we connect with one another on all three of those. So men, that means you have to listen. Soul, emotions, yeah, all those. You, know, you have to validate emotions. You have to listen to them. Um, there's all three of those. So we have to, we have to go to uh, have our faith together, pray together, things like that, or whatever it means for you to be spiritually connected. And then finally, fourth, um, this one's huge to me. And I, the, way, the one I see young people, even in the church, people, actually old people in the church, missing this. Let your marriage sanctify you. Your marriage is God's vessel to change you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because your spouse will bother you precisely where you need to grow. And you could decide, we're done. I'm just, I can't do this because I want to be this person and you're not letting me be this person. So we're just going different ways. That's the world. And that's why divorces happen, even 50 plus. But let your marriage be your sanctification. If there are problems, then you need to look at yourself. You need to confess your sins. You need to repent them. And you need in humility to come together and figure out how must I change? What need I to do? It takes humility and confession. But marriage can be our sanctification. Marriage and commitment to it can cause us to overcome sins. It can cause us to lose the rough edges. It can cause our souls to be shaped in such a way that we attain what it looks like to be a member and citizen of the kingdom of heaven. God designed marriage not to just be, oh, you've got fire, you need a fireplace. That's, how, well, that's what gets us into this crazy contract. What keeps us in it is God saying, now I can sanctify you. Let your marriage, that's why when there's problems, we must work through them. It's not like, oh no, how dare I? God hates divorce. I don't want to do it. He, it's not good, of course, but it's because God is using your problems and he's using the struggles and he's using the disagreements so that the two come together and stop looking at themselves and start looking at the one who unified them. Nothing has grown my life. Nothing has sanctified me more than marriage and listening to my wife. Like, I mean, okay, listening to God's a pretty big deal too. But I mean, like, outside of the spiritual practices, the things you don't see coming, marriage has been one of the most soul-shaping experiences I've ever gone through. And I would not be who I am today if I was not married. Period. I would probably be the verse 7 through 13. And I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. The wisdom of marriage is that it saves us from ourselves. It is. That's why Paul said it is Christ in the church. 
marriage is a picture of salvation, not just because it's like, oh, look, two are coming together. It is a picture of salvation because it saves and sanctifies the soul when done well. And when done poorly, you could be confirming sin in your life for a long, long time. If God has called you to singleness, that is also a picture of the gospel and salvation. Because you get to glorify God in your chastity. And Romans 12 says, offer yourselves a living sacrifice to God. And in this day and age especially, there is no greater sacrifice than your sexuality. People today think it's absolutely crazy. The Catholic Church is struggling to find priests because nobody wants to give up their right to sexuality. Singleness can be one of the greatest Christian witnesses in our time. If it's done without, I don't mean worldly singleness. Oh, I'm single, but I'm sleeping around, and it's so freeing. No, I mean singleness where you glorify him in your chastity. And if God has called us to marriage, let us glorify him in our fidelity. Both preach the gospel in a fallen world. Let's pray. So, Lord, we offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices, asking you to take them to glorify yourself in us.